On August 17, 1917, American journalist Jack Reed set sail from New York City, bound for Russia. His book, Ten Days That Shook the World, became a sensation by providing a first-hand account of the Bolshevik Revolution and the birth of the Soviet Union. During the seven-decade experiment in state socialism, journalists played a decisive role in shaping the public's opinion on both sides of the Cold War divide, a legacy that continues today as geopolitical tensions between Russia, Europe, and the United States persist and are shaped by political correspondents across the globe. I'm David Blunt. This is the City Politics Podcast, and today we'll give you the city view on East-West relations through the journalism of politics and the politics of journalism. Hello and welcome to the City Politics Podcast. I'm joined as always by the soothsayer of city, Constantine Vossing, lecturer in comparative politics. How are things, Constantine? Fantastic. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, enjoying the start of autumn in London from the hopefully COVID-proof confines of my flat. Today, we're joined by two guests. The first is Dina Feinberg, lecturer in modern history. Dina's research explores the history of the Soviet Union, modern Russia, with particular emphasis on the Cold War, late socialism, mass media, propaganda, and Russia's relationship with the West. Hi, Dina. Welcome to the show. Hi, David. Hi, Constantine. Hi, James. Nice to see you. And we are also joined by James Rogers, reader in international journalism. His particular areas of interest are Russia and the former Soviet Union and the Middle East. Before entering journalism academia full-time in 2010, James was a journalist for 20 years. He spent 15 years at the BBC, completing correspondent postings in Moscow, Brussels, and Gaza, as well as numerous other assignments. These included reporting from New York and Washington after 9-11 and covering the war in Iraq in 2003 and 2004. And now you can say that you were the first guest from outside of the Department of International Politics to join the City Politics Podcast. Welcome, James. Thank you, David. Thank you, Constantine. It's really nice to be here. And today we're going to be talking about Russia and world politics, but we'll be doing so through the lens of journalism because both our guests have recently published or have forthcoming books on journalism in the Cold War and, in James's case, into present-day Russia. This should be a fascinating topic because so much of our political discourse on states Uh, especially ones that we have geopolitical tensions with, get shaped by journalism. But before we do that, we're going to have to pull out the city crystal ball and look into the future. So, Constantine, would you do the honors? Yes. Uh, As always, uh, you can only answer yes or no, and we know that's very tough for academics. Um, But try, give it a try. Uh, We do that to condense as much expertise as possible into just just a few questions and answers. So let's uh, look into the crystal ball and see what we can learn from your knowledge of the past for the future. Um, So I'll ask you those 10 questions uh, and you give me yes or no answers and then we'll discuss this afterwards. Question number one. In 10 years, will Vladimir Putin still rule Russia? Dina? Yes. If he's alive, then yes. Yeah, of course, we're assuming that he's, yes, yes, yes. Yes. James. No. Question number two. In 20 years, will Russia be a full consolidated democracy with a free press, among other things? Dina. I have a problem with this question because Russia already has a free press, among other things, and... um, kind of define fully consolidated democracy. Is it going to be West Germany? No. Okay, so for us, fully consolidated democracy means free, fair, and frequent elections, civil liberties guaranteed. Yes. Okay, James. No. After the end of Putin's rule, whenever that happens, will we look back and conclude that misinformation and disinformation were his strongest foreign policy weapons? Dina. No. No. James. No. Number four, will future historians conclude that the Cold War was decisive in reshaping journalism? Dina. Yes. James. No. Number five, in the definitive history of journalism during the 20th century, will we read that journalism is a force that can help ease tensions between countries? Dina. Certainly could, but not necessarily would. Well, it could be. So we'll give that a yes, if that's okay. A yes, conditional yes. James. On that basis, I'll say yes to Constantine. Uh, Number six. In that same history book, the one on the definite history of journalism during the 20th century, 
where we read that objective and apolitical journalism is possible? No. James? No. Number seven. In a few years, will we stop seeing the world through the lens of the Cold War? Also answer yes, if we already have. Dina? How long is few years? Yeah, five. No. James? Yes. Number eight, will future historians conclude that the disinformation of the social media age already began with Stalin? Dina? No. James? No. Number nine, when we write the definite history of Fox News, will we find that it was more trustworthy than Pravda? Dina? No. James? <laughs> oh, come on, don't no. even think about it. <laughs> okay, no. Okay. Number 10, the, the final one for today. Uh, looking back in a few years, will we find that disinformation and misinformation was more prevalent during the Cold War than today? Dina? No. James? No. Okay, thank you so much for looking into the crystal ball for me. For all of us. Now, the crystal ball is, uh, I mean, we could also call it sort of the academic uh, sort of rack, tor torture rack, right? You yeah. know, getting a yes or no answer on these co uh, very complicated questions is really difficult. But we've got some really fascinating points of agreement and disagreement uh, on the role of journalism in the Cold War and today and Russia. So it's, uh, we have a lot of food for thought. Uh, perhaps we should start off by talking about, I guess, the role of journalism in international politics. Uh, because you've both sort of indicated that journalism can help ease international tensions. So perhaps that's sort of a good point to sort of break into this and say, you know, well, why do people get into international journalism and how does it affect world politics? And since, James, you have a lot of experience in this, perhaps you'd uh, take, it, take the first swing at it. Thank you. And I think, David, that, you know, that the answer to that question probably lies in... Uh, it depends on a number of factors. It depends upon the individual and their motivation, which can be very varied as to why people get into international news. Um, but it also depends upon, um, largely upon a desire to go places and to tell stories. It's really as simple as that. And I think international journalism can be very, very much uh, a force for good when that kind of inquiry uh, has as its purpose to explain another country or another culture to another people. I mean, I think one of the particular interesting cases about Russia uh, is that if we take, um, you know, the West in general, if we take Western Europe, the United States, Canada, there are relatively few people who've been there. If you think where we're sitting in London, there's a lot of people, hundreds of thousands within a few kilometres of where I'm sitting, who've been to France and to Spain, for example. The same number, uh, you know, with the exception of our, you know, fairly large Russian population in London and the UK now, would not be true of other people. So I think the thing about Russia is it's, you know, the, 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 the characteristics that emerge of Russian correspondents who've gone to Russia is this curiosity to learn about the country in many cases uh, and many have gone with agendas you know in the 1930s for example a lot of correspondents went from the west because they were communists you know um, Malcolm Muggeridge um, in his memoirs has this remarkable story of getting rid of his dinner jacket because he thought he wouldn't need such bourgeois um, accessories <laughs> in the socialist society he of course was one of those who became bitterly disillusioned and came home a few years later but as terms of political understanding, it does, you know, there's no doubt that journalism influences policymakers and vice versa, of course. Um, but particularly in the case of Russia, where relatively few people have been to, able to go to see for themselves, it does, I would argue, certainly have had, has had a disproportionate influence on opinions of the country. Yeah, I think that that sort of rings really true. Uh, Russia occupies a particular place in the Western imagination because it's very similar to the West, right? You know. This is a country that just has deep ties into Western Europe. There's the Christian tradition. There's sort of the alliances that bound these sort of countries together in warfare, but it's distinct, right? Russia has always been sort of pictured as the mysterious East. And that can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. You know, people viewed it as the heart of despotism in the 19th century, but then it became the heart of world revolution and progressive politics in the 1920s and 1930s. Uh, so it has a sort of really strange part or strange uh, place in the western imagination so yeah i think it's fascinating i understand why people are drawn to it adina uh, do you have anything to sort of add on the role of journalists in uh, in international politics in, in general or in particular with russia i think that 
the kind of we're talking about the influences of the Cold War. So the Cold War was actually pretty big in bringing journalists into international politics, both as participants. It is during the Cold War that we see journalists who actually become diplomats or semi-diplomats and start executing missions of coming together. American editors' interviews with Nikita Khrushchev are considered of seminal importance. Uh, Alexei Jubey's interview with Kennedy was super considered like as a super important moment in superpower relations. Uh, and we have more and more of these where journalists, especially foreign correspondents like James, go and meet Soviet colleagues, go and meet Soviet officials. When we have Soviet journalists who are arriving in all sorts of covering missions and then actually bear messages from the Soviet government to American counterparts. This is why. Yeah, I mean, and that level of access, I mean, I think Dina makes a very interesting point, particularly about Khrushchev there. It's impossible to imagine these days, but in the 1950s, Khrushchev would go to diplomatic receptions and chat to the foreign correspondents. You know, they would go there expecting to get a story when an embassy held its national day for the United States. That would be Independence Day for the British embassy. It would be the Queen's birthday when they would invite you know, various officials. And the access is, is really, really almost next to impossible to imagine now that, you know, the, the general secretary of the Communist Party would just chat away to, to the assembled foreign correspondents who'd note down his words. Journalists also, I think the press also became important in international politics as an object of concern in the sense that it was because of the Cold War that, and since the Cold War, that we care in diplomacy how much access journalists have, that we talk about through diplomacy about uh, journalists' ability to report freely, journalists' ability to travel from place to place. These were not, these issues were not there before the Cold War and, and, and that kind of journalism becomes an object of foreign policy. Decline of access, I think, is a really interesting topic. You know, the idea that sort of Khrushchev would walk into the embassy and have a chat with journalists. I mean, I can't imagine Vladimir Putin doing that, let alone Donald Trump. I mean, can you imagine Donald Trump having a free-for-all uh, with some random correspondence? It seems unthinkable. So what explains this decline of access? If, if you look at the way things have gone throughout history, it's really come and gone. I mean, you know, Lenin mm -hmm. and even Stalin gave the occasional interview to international media. Um, but there are also times in the early years um, when the, during, the, during the Civil War, when the Bolsheviks were in the process of consolidating their power, when it was very, very difficult uh, for journalists from bourgeois countries, as they were called. And this was a description, by the way, which lasted right until the end of the Soviet Union. Now, if you were from a communist medium, if you were from a Western newspaper that was a communist newspaper, then you'd be given a different um, means of accreditation than if you were, uh, than if you were with, the, with the so-called bourgeois press. But there were times when access came and went. Um, of course, Gorbachev's perestroika era is the big example, you know, when there was more access. But the early Putin years, you know, there's been a big transformation just over the 20 years that Putin has been in power. There's a Russian, there's a tradition in Russia that the leader, particularly a new leader, might well seek a big interview with an international media, with, with Western media, in order to show themselves at home as a leading international figure. And um, we see that Putin did this with, with webcasts, as they were called, you know, pioneering interactive TV interviews in the 2000s. And now, of course, he gives far fewer interviews to Western media. And when he does, he chooses his outlets very carefully, warning the Financial Times, for example, that liberalism was dead, you know, the most recent one that comes to mind. So it has changed even within the Putin era, but it's also part of changing um, means of communication, I think, as well. There, there were so much fewer foreign correspondents in Moscow throughout the Cold War. I mean, the press corps, the American press corps never exceeded like 25 people at its height, and it was usually lower. So it's a completely different the status of journalism was completely different. But I also think these are two different media traditions. So the United States have that institution of a presidential press conference, like for better or worse, however the president in charge conducts it. I mean, yes, Trump schools up royally, but there is an institution that is, exists since Truman, sorry, since um, FDR. Uh, where journalists come to a place to ask president a question. And so Soviet journalists participated in these on a routine basis alongside all other journalists. The Soviet Union had nothing of the kind. And so there were all these like interesting um, kind of ad hoc and creative sort of opportunities to question Soviet leaders by, Russia, by, by foreign journalists that continue today. So all these like, like various kind of things that Putin does, they're kind of in line with that tradition of um, 
where there is no established forum of exchange between the head of state and foreign journalists and whatever exists is kind of the state puts in place in various contexts. What I, what I found fascinating uh, in both of your statements is that you you sort of suggest, if I understood this correctly, that there's this long-term development where there's actually a lot of sort of stability that sort of defies the regime changes that we've seen in Russia over the past 150 years or so. And that the real difference in specifically in terms of media relations, but maybe even more broadly, is between individual leaders and what they do and how they use the constitutional powers or the constitutional setup that is, that is a given. Um, and in that, from that perspective, the, the switch from sort of the Cold War to the end of the Soviet Union to what we have today uh, wouldn't even be such a big, uh, big rupture in that perspective. It would just be sort of the transition to one leader and then another, and they make different things uh, out of the powers that they were given. Is, is that true? I mean, I think, I think the, 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 there is a certain logic to that, definitely, Constantine. I think the other thing that needs to be taken into account, and if we're particularly thinking of the Cold War, is the way that the media changed. Um, there were a few foreign correspondents who were allowed to be based in Moscow during the Second World War. But the way that communication was changing then, obviously the medium that really came to the fore during that period um, was radio. And that, you know, that was the medium that everyone needed to sort of conquer in terms of propaganda and getting their message across. And this was a, this was a, a source of frustration to the correspondents who were in Moscow then, because what started to happen was that they were not allowed to send a story, but even if they knew there was a particular story, basically there was very strict censorship as there was in, in every country in wartime. But then what would happen was that Radio Moscow would broadcast the story and the story would get to New York or to Washington or to London before the correspondents were able to report it. So they, they found themselves victims of that change in communication. That was also a factor in what was happening after the war. Of course, the political climate changed very quickly and uh, the Soviet Union and its allies went from being allies to being antagonists quite soon. I'll, I'll uh, strongly second James's last statement. I really think that relations, I guess, journalists, attitudes towards foreign journalists in the Soviet Union or in Russia is, in a sense, mirroring uh, Russian relations with the West, but it sometimes can be ahead of its time. So, for example, when Khrushchev kind of hangs out with Western correspondents, he actually journalists and Khrushchev themselves are running ahead of international affairs as a pack. And when he's invited to on to on face the nation, then the Eisenhower administration says, oh, we're not like they refuse to comment on um, CBS's invitation. And this is to speak also to the fact that different attitudes of political leadership towards the other side's correspondents exist in the United States. So we have very kind of the various presidential administrations engage Soviet correspondents and have policies towards our correspondents that are completely different, starting from trying to convert them and kind of impress these commies with you know the beauties of liberal capitalism and democracy to effectively say, oh no, we have nothing to do with them because these are diehard commies who will never understand uh, what we are showing them um, because Soviets are only showing us, like, sending us uh, KGB people or like really, you know, like hardcore ideologues. So the transitions, kind of the transitions between various political leaderships in attitudes exist on both sides. And they also, you can see them existing within the tenure of individual leader. Um, you know, someone like Brezhnev who sits, what is it, like for more than 20 years and now like rivaled only by Putin. Yes, of course, there are changes that, that also then reflect, kind of that take place throughout the course of their sitting in power. I think this is sort of quite opposite to one of the questions where, where our guests disagreed, which was about how the Cold War was decisive in reshaping journalism. Uh, so Dina, you said that it was decisive and James disagreed. So perhaps a Dina, you'd like to explain why the Cold War or how the Cold War reshaped journalism? Gladly, I wrote a whole book just about that. I think that it actually made liberal Western journalism and Soviet socialist journalism come close to each other, bear with. On the one hand, we see that the boundaries of what objectivity means in Western journalism changed to accommodate the anti-communist consensus with the Cold War and changed dramatically. On the other hand, we see Soviets actually looking at Western journalism and saying, oh, we can get these human interest stories and become more personable and kind of depart slightly from these like very stale, slogany, 
party type speeches. So another thing that happened is that, like I said, the journalists became kind of both parts of the democratic, of the diplomatic process and the objects of the diplomatic process. And more importantly, I think the Cold War really was instrumental into turning journalists into experts on foreign affairs. Only after the Cold War, correspondents who go to like the other superpower command the same level of uh, appreciation, of attention, of listening to, partially because kind of they cultivate themselves as experts on international affairs, as kind of specialists, as Russianists, as Americanists, and promote these identities and kind of contribute to policymaking on both sides. And I don't think this was the case, certainly not in the Soviet Union, which did not have an international press corps to speak of before the Cold War started. Uh, and not in the United States, where, where, like James said, there were a lot of these people who went as um, pilgrims with wearing their politics uh, on their sleeves, uh, which then made them appear not as trustworthy experts as you could be. I mean, I think throughout the last century and certainly into our own, um, one of the big factors which has affected journalism has been changing technology. I mean, if we go right back to the Russian revolutions of 1917, it's incredible to think now, but when they took power, but first the initial revolutions and subsequently the Bolsheviks uh, were able to shut Petrograd, as the, as the capital then was, off from the rest of the world. They could simply sever the telegraph link and nobody could really work out what was going on. Much as one talks about state control over the media, much as one talks about state control over freedom of expression, that is absolutely impossible to imagine these days. Then, of course, you know, through the first half of the 20th century and certainly during the Second World War, the Soviet authorities still had a great control over international journalism in the forms of censorship. One of the people I uh, interviewed for my book, who, who, who sadly has since died, but um, Robert Elphick, who was a correspondent for Reuters in Moscow in the 1950s, gave me a vivid description of what it was like to take your story to the censor, and you'd have to wait while it was gone through, um, and only then could it be transmitted. So there was great control then. And then, of course, you know, radio brought the opportunity for big international audiences all these evolutions, I think, brought different audiences and different prospect, different possibilities for journalism and also different challenges. So, of course, I'm not for a moment saying that there weren't political pressures shape and forces shaping journalism. But I think we also need to think um, of the possibilities offered by technology as a hugely influential factor as well. That sounds like that's absolutely true. And it reminds me sort of quite randomly, I was on Twitter this week and I was sort of going through my feeds. And one of the feeds that I follow are images from the Soviet Union. And there's this great picture of these Siberian peasants, probably in the early 1930s, hearing radio for the first time. And the look on their faces, uh, it looks like they're hearing the voice of God. Uh, and it's absolutely incredible to see. I'll put it on the uh, City Politics Podcast Twitter account. But it shows how technology really shifted the way in which people related to politics, right? Uh, the fact that they could have, you know, Stalin giving a speech broadcast directly into their homes in the remotest parts of the Soviet Union really changed the ways that people engaged with their political community in a way that I think in the age of the internet, we don't really consider. Uh, so yeah, technology, I think, has been, you know, a major impact, has had a major impact on on journalism, but perhaps this is sort of a, this is a good segue of thinking about how disinformation has followed with technology. So you know, one of the questions we asked is whether you know the the age of disinformation began with Stalin, and we probably said you know that's a bit of a stretch. But there is definitely an obsession, perhaps in Western circles, about Russian disinformation. And uh, is this overblown? Uh, is, are are we putting too much on things like RT? Uh, that's it's a very very good question because of course um, the perceived effect uh, and the uh, real effect are are in effect in some ways one and the same. So in other words, if everybody's terribly worried about RT, whether or not it is that influential, if people are worried about it, then it is in effect influential anyway. But I think you make a very interesting point there. I mean, let's not forget that when radio came on as the major international medium. It came on at a time, the Second World War, of course, it was the dominant medium then, 
when it was a new technology and also a time of huge global political conflict. And you have, well, in a way, you have similar situations you do now. There's lots of conflicts all over the world, you know, hot, hot and cold conflicts, if we can use that phrase, and as well as this major new explosion in the media. So, and I, and I think, too, it is true to say the example that you gave of the peasants listening to the radio is a really relevant one in the sense that people tend to be baffled and dazed sometimes by the new technology when it comes along uh, and also seem I think to believe that new technology will mean that political lies are going to be history remember the claims David that were made for social media you know the tyrants would have nowhere the people's voice would be coming through and of course now when we think of social media in terms of politics diplomacy journalism we think of it of course as a source of disinformation so i think in some ways we do set too much store by it you know if you look at the viewing figures of rt in the west they're actually pretty small but then of course that's not necessarily where people who want to access this content will go to look at it you can see that some of the the, the material they post um on various social media platforms has got a lot more viewers but again you know audience effects is something that is very difficult and an eternal debate within media studies People may watch it. You know, I watch RT sometimes. It doesn't mean to say, you know, and, and I think, you know, I often start from the premise of not believing it. Uh, I don't necessarily go there to be persuaded otherwise. I look at it as a journalistic and political phenomenon. So I think in some ways, you know, too much story is set by it. And, and it's been made, a point has been made very, very well uh, recently, both by the outgoing head of MI6, the um, main foreign intelligence service in this country and by Fiona Hill, the Russia expert and former advisor to President Trump, that you know, the divisions that, that these, um, this disinformation is supposed to exacerbate, they weren't created by Russia, but they were the existing tensions in contemporary Western uh, polities. Absolutely. Like I, I can remember, you know, and this is going to show that I'm getting on in years in the uh, in the 1990s, when people started to talk about the Internet as being the sort of forum by which truth will expand across the world. And uh, then social media, as you said, was supposed to be this great check on sort of secretive power. And we've seen it change. We've seen that obviously the Internet has become, you know, a major vehicle for political distortion. And distortion runs both ways, right? I mean, the narratives that we tell ourselves about Russia tend to perhaps not reflect the Russian view. Is there a problem in Western media about not being able to see the world through our geopolitical rivals' eyes, right? So when we report about Russia, we often sort of cast it as the villain uh, of the piece. And we say, you know, Russia is an aggressive imperialist power. It's autocratic. But does this reflect Russian interests? Uh, do we see things from the other side? Or are we as guilty as of distortion as perhaps we would like to blame RT for? Well, I, I, maybe not quite that far, but I mean, I think certainly a lot of people um, in the Russian political elite and certainly people at RT would probably make exactly that point. I think this is one point in international relations and understanding between countries where journalism can really, really, really offer something of value. And it's something that I, you know, that I reflected upon a lot when I was a correspondent. It's something that I use in my lectures when I'm, you know, now teaching the next generation of correspondents. And it is when we want to tell the story of a country, we have to understand the stories that that country tells about itself. Uh, and it doesn't mean to say we necessarily need to agree with them. But I went, um, when I was researching the book, uh, I went to uh, Volgograd, as the city is now called, of course, the site of the Second World War Battle of Stalingrad. And I spent a weekend there. I was very fortunate. It was a quiet time of year. It was March, so there was almost uh, no other tourists there. And I, and I went, um, I arrived late on a Friday afternoon. I went straight to the tourist office just to see what there was. And I found a guide and um, this guy very kindly agreed to accompany me around some of the sites. Um, the next day. So it was great practice for me. My Russian was a bit rusty. I spent three hours listening to and, and speaking Russian with him the next afternoon. And um, But I came away from Volgograd with this very strong sense that, you know, when you see the, the scale of the deaths and the sacrifice and this huge victory that, you know, I think a lot of historians would agree, if it's not the turning point in World War II, certainly a hugely significant moment. And I think it gave me an understanding into the way that, that Russia, you know, we in Western Europe tend to see Russia as a country uh, on the other side of the continent or you know, on the other side of Europe, which um, 
is menacing, a sort of menacing brooding presence, which occasionally and at key moments in European history intervenes, the Second World War being one of them, uh, Napoleon being another, I suppose. Um, but I also started, I came away thinking about how that's seen in Russia. And this is very much the way that I was trying to tell stories as a correspondent, you know, when, when Putin was coming to power and I was saying, well, trying to understand why he was genuinely popular in Russia. But I think in terms of um, the way that Russia sees the West, if you look at it from a certain Russian interpretation of their own history, from the West has come invasion from Napoleon, from the West has come invasion from Nazi Germany. And so they they see this, and, and this I think does help to explain um, you know, the, the great concern that Russia, for example, has had about the post-Cold War expansion of NATO. They've seen it as a, a threat to their security. Now, one can accept that analysis or not, but in order to understand the country, you have to understand that it exists and it has a certain power in that society. Yeah, when we do foreign policy analysis, we often talk about perception, right? So when we look at uh, NATO expansion, probably the average person in London or Washington would view it as fairly benign. You know, this is a defensive alliance. It's an alliance of democracies that share a same uh, basis in sort of Western European culture. Uh, but if you look at it through the eyes of Russia, if you look at it through the eyes of the citizen of Moscow, this seems to be a very aggressive move. You know, when I teach my, my students constructivism, I teach them that you have to be able to see from the other side uh, of a political debate in order to understand where interests lie. And perhaps we lost track of that interest uh, or Russians' perceptions of their interests in the 1990s during NATO expansion. But at the same time, we could also say, you know, if the Baltic states want to join NATO, that's their absolute right as, a sovereign, as sovereign states, right? Uh, and that Russia may not like it, but this doesn't justify uh, aggressive policies in its near abroad. Yeah, I think that's very true. And I think, I mean, it's remarkable. It's going to be 30 years next year since the Soviet Union uh, collapsed. Uh, and, and there's still these issues which we're dealing with so far on. But you're right, you know, from a Russian point of view, I mean, that, um, you know, put very simply, I think that is the core issue in the conflicts that Russia has had with Georgia and most particularly with Ukraine in the last few years. Uh, but it, it did it did see it, you know, very much uh, in the terms which you describe. And I think, as I say, we need uh, we need to understand that because if you look at it from a very sort of simple analysis, it's funny when, you know, when, I, when I was in Russia, people would ask me, you know, what was the most serious time? What was the most serious time in the sort of post-Cold War relations and people and now of course i would undoubtedly um say that it would have been the conflict in georgia in 2008 or the conflict uh, in ukraine from 2014 onwards but prior to that i would have answered the question in the following way and i would have said it was um NATO intervention in Serbia over Kosovo in 1999, because that was the time, I was a correspondent there at the time, it really did feel like a low point. You know, we did sort of feel, we, um, you know, we were given warnings um, from the British Embassy to keep a low profile in public. Then, uh, as some listeners may know, um, foreigners had to have special license plates uh, on their cars. And, and, and for journalists, they began with K, they were yellow when most car, car number plates were white, and they began with K, for correspondence in Russian. Uh, and then the, then the following three numbers uh, showed which country you came from. And the UK was K001 because they were wow. the first major country to recognize the Soviet Union. So there's a bit of history there. But it meant we were very readily identifiable. And that was the only time that, you know, I thought it probably was quite wise to keep a low profile because this, the feeling that, um, you know, in, in a sense, a sort of Russian Cold War, Soviet Cold War prophecy had come true, which was if the Warsaw Pact dissolves, then NATO will attack a socialist country. And, and from one sort of Russian perception in the 1990s, that is exactly what had happened. What I find interesting in the question of technology uh, and sort of reporting, but also the, the sort of the question of misinformation and disinformation, and that was what the Stalin question was about to some extent. I think people today, or I ask myself when I look at sort of disinformation and misinformation, partly as a conscious effort of foreign governments to interfere in electoral processes, is this something that is new to the social media age, or is it just a continuation of stuff that governments have always done, only with different means, because the technology was different? in the Cold War, but also in the era between the end of the Cold War and the sort of the pre-social media age and the social media age that we have right now. What do you say about that, Dina and James? I find the conversation about Russian disinformation 
as is beamed to us from contemporary press deeply unsatisfactory and very sensationalist. And we have uh, a lot of statements and much fewer evidences to back them up. And to be honest, I would have failed a lot of these reports in my classes for making arguments without backing up with sufficient evidence. I, I think the conversation about kind of trolls and bots and how they supposedly undermine faith in the democratic process robs people of their political agency and assumes that people are too stupid to make their own decisions. And the sad fact is today you don't need a Russian troll factory to undermine your faith in a democratic process. You just need to follow Donald Trump's Twitter account and look at the Trump White House. Uh, you can look at statistics of uh, police shooting in the United States or what kinds of people die of COVID-19 in greater proportions. And I, find, and, I, and I find that kind of this conversation of blaming the political shambles in the US and Britain for that matter on Russian intervention is the easy way out instead of looking inward and actually dealing with the problem. Yeah. And that too, let me remind you, has a historical precedent because uh, civil rights leaders in the United States and any member of any left-wing organization were surveilled by the FBI as potential agents of communism. Their statements completely ignored. Uh, kind of their critique was completely ignored and dismissed because they were commies and this is what the conversation focused about. In general, as a historian, um, and I thought about this a lot, I'm skeptical about the power of this information to really change things. And I don't think it's findable and knowable. And, and, and how do we kind of isolate this information from all these other things? I mean, I look today, so RT has 3.99 million subscribers on YouTube, uh, slightly more than MSNBC. And I'm not counting kind of all the other media. If you look at it from a Russian government's perspective, they are like a tiny David and Putin used that metaphor, the Goliath of uh, Western, of media who's, who are headquarters, who are headquartered in uh, countries that are hostile to Russia. I think during the Cold War, it was more equal because Soviet media truly had an international outreach. A kind of, kind of this, the entire socialist bloc bought and subscribed to TASS, which was the Soviet Union's primary agency. Uh, agency Press Novosti, which is actually the forefather of Russia Today. I mean, Ru Russia Today is like an evolution of that particular organization. It was established with the purpose of bringing the Soviet viewpoint to foreign audiences. But that said, even then, they still couldn't match they didn't, re there was, it wasn't really matching because US press had so much more infrastructure, so much more money than the Soviets to invest and really kind of a better know-how. Uh, so the Soviets were in a sense, they were pretty successful, but they were always playing catch up and not, however the Americans imagined them in reality, they were kind of catching up and responding to trends that the kind of US media was leading. It's a really interesting point on sort of the way in which we use uh, foreign media sources that come from perceived hostile powers as a way to delegitimize voices within democratic societies. And, you know, I really have in mind sort of what you were saying, Dina, earlier about uh, how leaders of the civil rights movement were often sort of lightly sort of daubed in as being KGB agents or sort of somehow undermining America's prestige in the world by airing dirty laundry outside. And this was used as a way of sort of saying, well, there isn't actually a problem. The problem is that you're talking about the problem. And this, I think, does have strong continuities today, where you see sort of what's the way in which people who are engaged in protests in America right now are portrayed on Fox News. You know, they're basically shown as, uh, you know, either violent thugs or people who hate America. And, uh, this is sort of very topical in the news today, but the president of the United States yesterday sort of announced uh, by executive order, he's going to establish the 1776 project, which will teach American children patriotic history in their schools. Uh, and this seems to be sort of a, you know, state-led misinformation campaign uh, addressing history itself. Well, what about the UK? What about the uh, the manual? The um, I don't even know what what's the name of that manual, the history manual that uh, migrants to the UK have to read and uh, write multiple oh, choice tests on. That's life in the UK. Yes, uh, I know one, this yeah. because my wife just passed the life in the UK test. Yay! Uh, <laughs> so I actually done the I so I studied for life in the UK test twice. 
uh, won't explain why, but for the first time it was the labor version, which actually taught you about like British institutions and where do you go to when you need to test your car for functionality. And then I studied for the Tory one, which wanted me to know uh, how many ski resorts the UK has, uh, who were the Beatles, who is Chaucer, and had a whole section that addresses a potential terrorist. Like, I kid you not, like, what do you do if you encounter a terrorist attack? What do you do about hearing terrorists plotting? This wants to say is that despite however much we like to think about uh, the West as different from the Russia, there are, and, and as someone who studies these, like, these entities comparatively, I can, I, I'm never cease to be amazed how many parallels are there, right? So everybody was crying about Putin doctor history textbooks 10 years ago, and look at the 1776 uh, project or at British school curriculum, which conveniently kind of forgets to mention many problematic spots of the past. But is interesting to me and that ties back to David one of David's original questions is the role that Russia plays in kind of in our self in our self-imagination right we it, it's like it's so much like us but yet not like us and constantly kind of challenges that thing and so we cannot help by looking kind of the west cannot help by looking at Russia to think about itself comparatively and it has been doing this for for more than a hundred years so it's the bit of a narcissism of the small differences. They are harder to stomach than the really big differences, right? I think I think that pe if mm. you kind of people get really angry where I tell them that there is a lot of similarity between you know uh, Russia and the West, between Russian media and Western media. I have students who get very angry when they say things like this in class. So like, I think it was it's 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 a very convenient object of comparison because they like you. They big. They are Christian. They are white. And so, but then they say, we can still look at them and feel better because, hey, we have democracy and freedom of speech and our press is better. And we have all these freedoms and, and considerations of, uh, you know, what do you call it? Civil human rights or kind of political, fully fledged political rights. Uh, that's why I took such a big issue with your question. Kind of, do we have, is our press freer than the Russian press or is Russian press completely unfree? The answer is no. Do we have more political rights than the Russians or is that just uh, something that we conveniently tell ourselves to feel better about our lives and the imperfections of our world? I want to go back to sort of, we're almost out of time, but I do want to touch on our Fox News question because I think this is sort of something that is an interesting cap. So both of you said uh, that Fox News is less trustworthy than Pravda was, uh, which I think a lot of our listeners would be surprised of. You know, Pravda, of course, was the sort of one of the major state uh, newspapers for the Soviet Union, uh, and it, it's still in publication today, if I recall. Uh, is it owned by the Communist Party still? I think it is. Isn't it? Yeah, but it's nowhere near. You know, Not what, what it was, it was yeah. during oh, the Soviet times. The golden age um, of Pravda. I, yeah, <laughs> um, the golden age of Pravda is gone. <laughs> So how do we explain this? How do we explain that, you know, a, an ostensibly free press organ like Fox News is less free than the official mouthpiece of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union? I have an idea. I'm going to explain how come the official mouthpiece of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union was not actually as bound as we might think. And then James can say why Fox News is uh, not as bad. So I'm, I'm, I am going to cheat because I think that from everything that I know about the official organ of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, it had an agenda and it had a resident censor as all Soviet press had, but it also had to, it also operated in a world where truth mattered. For people who wrote for Pravda, a truth mattered. Uh, people who wrote for Pravda saw themselves as writing within parameters of truth and, and had to still follow to like both the truth of fact as in not saying that, like not saying fake things that didn't happen and the truth of meaning that is um, that whatever they wrote and interpreted aligned with like the grander, grander ideas of socialism. So we had like internal logic and, and truth. I don't, th I think, I don't think that Fox News is worse than Pravda, but I don't think that it's better. 
I mean, there is some kind of understanding. And then we as external observers may say, oh, Pravda notion of facts or Pravda notion of truth doesn't correspond to the objective notion of truth or facts, however we, we see it. But I think that you can see the same dynamics in Fox News. These are people who produce truths that they see as truth, that they are bound within specific ideology, that may or may not do so also with the cynical purposes of attracting audiences' attention and kind of grabbing headlines. Uh, but effectively, they produce a description of reality that does not correspond to the actual view of this reality, and that description is deeply ideological. And for that reason, I don't think that they are in any way, like in that in these in these sense in this sense, they're not different from Pravda. I mean, the constraints are different. There's no sort of, I mean, there's very few media organisations uh, in the world that can say they're sort of true, completely free and independent. It's a bit like total objectivity. It's maybe something to strive for, but something which is extremely difficult um, fully to attain. And we have to remember that, you know, they're working, if we're comparing with, with Pravda and with Fox News, you know, in a way, Pravda's existence was guaranteed, you know, because it was always going to have its budget. A point, by the way, that I think is still relevant today if you're working for Russian state media. You know, journalism's going through a very difficult time, as is pretty much every sphere of the economy because of the, the huge problems caused by the pandemic. But, you know, I think if you're working for Russian state media, you can probably be fairly sure that you're going to have a job at the end of this. Fox News, on the other hand, works in you know an ultra capitalist society and an ultra capitalist system a system of course of which itself you know, declares itself to be fully in favor but within that it needs to get the audiences you know if it doesn't if it doesn't have the audience it, does, it ceases to exist whereas the same would not have been true of Pravda during the Soviet Union so it, it needs to continue to attract audiences to continue to get um, advertising and other revenues so that is its constraint um, which may mean, of course, sometimes, you know, and, and there's not a single journalist who has not one day gone into their office or to their newsroom and thought, I really want to pursue this story today. But, you know, you come up against the, the belief or the perception or the direct order from the editor that nobody's interested in that. And so nobody's going to watch it. So you better get on with something else. Have Western powers missed a step here? Because as you were saying before, it seems that everyone has an English language news channel, which is mm -hmm. perhaps to lesser and greater degrees pushing the geopolitical interests of their home country. But at the same time, we've seen, you know, uh, the BBC World Service getting scaled back, uh, American uh, global media projects like uh, what, Radio Free Europe, uh, which were very prominent in the Cold War, also scaled back significantly. Has the sort of divestment from media or in the media by Western powers, is this, is this us losing the media game? geopolitics so that's a very good question i mean i think the, the trouble is uh, you know as we were talking you, you, you were mentioning before about um you know if you don't like what you're reading you can find a, a you know a website or a, or a tv program that, that you'll agree with uh, i mean the bbc the parts of the bbc of course you know the world services now it has benefited from some extra uh, UK foreign office funding in the last few years. They've targeted it certain particular countries. But I think, you know, in common with most domestic media markets, people are tending increasingly to go with what they agree with, you know, and whereas once and now, uh, you know, there's a big contrast. I mean, let's take the Russian approach. It's a big contrast to what they tried to do during the Soviet period and what they're doing now. During the Soviet period, they could and did control access to information from outside the country, very successfully to promote their own narratives in their own official media. Now they realize that that's no longer really possible. So they're doing something sort of slightly smarter, which is, you know, as I suggested in my book, is to attack Western narratives. So they'll let, you know, people will have access to it more or less, but it will be immediately trashed. Um, one, let's think of one recent example, um, the Financial Times and New York Times uh, questioning of Russian uh, official figures of the number of um, coronavirus cases. And it was an interesting moment in the sense that, you know, we think that these established media brands maybe don't have the influence that once they did, but this was a case which really showed, you know, within a couple of days, you had criticism of this reporting in the Russian parliament and you had the foreign ministry spokeswoman directly criticizing them. So I think this was an example of where, you know, these conventional uh, media organizations with good in-depth reporting can still really have a big influence. 
Great. Uh, well, we're, we're at the end of the hour, so I think we should probably wrap it up. But thank you both for participating in the City Politics Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Dina's work, stay tuned for Cold War Correspondents, Soviet and American Reporters on the Ideological Front Lines from Johns Hopkins University Press. Margaret Peacock of the University of Alabama has said this book is a joy to read. It's so good I found myself reading it slowly with care. Incredibly well-researched and beautifully written, it constructs a compelling argument that will make a significant contribution to the scholarship on Cold War history, media history, and present debates about the origins of the post-truth universe we inhabit today. It'll be on bookshelf soon. In the meantime, you can follow Dina on Twitter at Dina Feinberg, D-I-N-A-F-A-I-N-B-E-R-G. But if you need your fix of Cold War journalism right now, pick up James's new book, Assignment Moscow, reporting on Russia from Lenin to Putin. This book analyzes Western journalists' news coverage of Russia from the siege of the Winter Palace and the plot to kill Stalin to the Chernobyl explosion and the Salisbury poison scandal. Arkady Ostrovsky, author of The Invention of Russia and winner of the 2016 Orwell Prize, has called it engrossing and accessible. It tells the story of British and American journalists who aimed to throw light on Russia and in the process illuminated the West itself. Assignment Moscow is now out from Ivy Taurus. You can follow James on Twitter at James McRogers, J-M-A-C-R-O-D-G-E-R-S. You should also follow Constantine on Twitter as well at K underscore Vossin. And you can follow me, if you want, on social media at GD Blunt. Thank you for listening to the City Politics Podcast, the official podcast of the Department of International Politics at City University of London. Follow us on Twitter at the City Politics. And if you want to drop us a line, get in touch via our email, cpp at city.ac.uk. Well, shucks, folks, that's the end of the episode. But you know what you could do. You know, if you're listening to this on SoundCloud, maybe click on that little heart button. See what happens. You might just make my day. And feel free to give us a review and rate us on iTunes. Thanks for listening, everyone. And as always, a big thanks to Cambo for the music and to our wonderful producer, Atina Dimitrova. Take care, everyone.